Welcome to this week's episode of Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and today's podcast is another live recording from Antidote 2018, a festival of ideas, action and change at the Sydney Opera House. When we initially invited Chelsea Manning to speak at Antidote, we knew she would have a lot to contribute to the weekend's discussions. Known internationally for leaking hundreds of thousands of top-secret US military documents to WikiLeaks in 2010, her voice was an important addition to the lineup of international changemakers and action-takers. But her path to the Sydney Opera House was not straightforward, and she ended up appearing via satellite from Los Angeles. Here's the recording of the event now as it unfolded at the festival, which starts with my introduction about the issues that prevented Chelsea from entering Australia. Now, as I imagine you all already know, despite a lot of people's best efforts to try and make it happen, Chelsea Manning was not granted her visa to be able to attend today in time. She was... (laughs) We received a notification of an intention to consider denial under Section 51B of the Immigration Act. And this is an act which pertains, a section that pertains to the notion of character um, not being of good character. And it strikes me that the notion of character is nothing if not subjective. Depending on where you sit, someone is either a martyr or a terrorist, an expert or a propagandist, a traitor or a whistleblower. These distinctions can be pointed or blurry, again, depending on your politics and your perspective. And look, I understand why character has to be part of the Immigration Act. We don't want people coming to this country inciting hate or violence. We don't want people who are likely to hurt, murder, attack any Australian citizens. I think everybody agrees with that. But Chelsea Manning, leaked thousands of classified documents to WikiLeaks. She's served many years in jail for that and a few in solitary for this act. And there is vigorous and, I think, important debate about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing to do, whether she was laying bare war crimes and corruption and exposing a system which didn't always support values that we might hold dear or whether she was committing an act of treason which jeopardised sensitive operations and um, military events. And people are entitled to their opinions about this. But Chelsea Manning was not coming to Australia to incite hate or violence. She was not coming to maim anyone, to kill anyone, and it's hard to think that her coming to this country to talk about data privacy, surveillance, or ironically, the abuse of power, is going to be a threat to our national security in this country. So I'm glad that we've been able to make it happen, albeit by long distance, because I do think that what Chelsea has to say is important, and I think it deserves to be heard and discussed and debated by Australians. She's going to be speaking today with uh, Peter Grester, who is an academic at the University of Queensland and, of course, a well-known journalist. Um, While he was working with Al Jazeera in 2014, he was arrested by the Egyptian government and spent more than a year in jail in Egypt. I think that he is a really good person to be talking to Chelsea today 
So I'd like you to welcome to the stage convicted terrorist and one of the nicest and most gentle men I know, Peter Grester. Ladies and gentlemen, Chelsea Manning. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't got all night. <laughs> a convicted terrorist talking to a convicted spy. No wonder the authorities are worried. Um, Chelsea, you probably heard you. There's an issue over character. Are you of bad character? Uh, I mean, that's that's a matter of interpretation. <laughs> the, just to be clear, the question under the Act, the question of character, or someone is deemed to be of bad character if you've been convicted of a crime and spent more than and and uh, convicted and sentenced to more than 12 months. And of course, uh, the minister does have the discretion to override this. To allow people into the country regardless of that background. And, and I think everyone here would recognize that there is something fundamentally flawed in the, in, in the fact that uh, you haven't been allowed to come. So I, I endorse uh, Edwina's comments a few moments ago. Um, Edwina, I just, uh, sorry, Chelsea, I just wanted to begin by asking you, by taking you back, because this is, I think, quite fundamental to where we are at the moment. And that's what it was in Bradley Manning's mind that made him feel that it was time to, to leak, that took him from being an intelligence analyst um, in the military, a soldier, into, into I'm, some... I'm, I'm sorry. Um, please don't dead name me. <laughs> no. That's fine. I guess what I was trying to say is, is, is the kind of transformation that you went through, um, in both politically and personally, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, life is a journey, and certainly been a part of that. Um, you know, like from childhood to get, you know, growing up and going through many different transitional periods, living in the UK for a while, and uh, going, being in the, you know, being homeless, being in the military. I think all of these things, you know, certainly add together in a cumulative effect for, uh, you know, making the experience that is my life. But in, in, in terms of what was going on in the field, and when we spoke earlier, you were talking about how um, you saw a feedback loop that was ultimately destructive. I'm just wondering if you can talk us through the process that you went through as a military analyst, um, because obviously someone doesn't sign up, to, you don't join the military, um, or very few people join the military intending to, to turn against it. What was it that, that flipped the switch in your mind? Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a loaded question. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I enlisted in the military when I was you know, 19, so uh, obviously very young and idealistic. I wanted to make a difference in the world. Also, I had just been homeless for a, about six months. Um, 
So it was a it was a sense of security, um, especially at a time whenever I'm you know working odd jobs at my aunt's house, um, and being kind of gender queer, um, not you know like not real like not really knowing what's going on with my gender identity, and also you know work, you know working eighty hours a week with you know juggling two jobs and also going to college at the same time. Uh, and I burnt, you know, I got burnt out by all of these different things, and I wanted to to make a difference in my life. And every day on national television was uh, this, you know, the, or the surge, you know, the so-called surge in Iraq. Um, and uh, it was just dominated. It dominated the conversation. It dominated the the dinner table. It dominated um, just. It, it was just an all-encompassing experience uh, at the time. Um, and uh, I wanted to be to do something and be a part of something. And uh, and my father, you know, I also wanted to like. I naively thought like, oh, the military will man me up, so to speak. Um, and uh, you know, uh, yeah. And um, I, you know, I I brought you know my skills in terms of math and uh, analysis. Um, uh, ironically, I didn't really want to work with computers, which is why I became an intelligence analyst. Um, but that changed, like, like as I w arrived, they they're like, okay, here's a brand new computer system that you know y'all are going to be using now. Um, and uh, so I, I just used uh, the computers to to do um, statistics and uh, modeling, um, Bayesian statistics in particular. But um, you know. Uh, at the time, it was just number crunching that I, I ended up doing, and I had a very um, mathematical mindset um, on this. You know, I viewed, uh, you know, I, I thought of Iraq and Afghanistan as being equations that can be solved. Um, that you know, uh, uh, somehow I could just math the shit out of this and you know m make a difference. Um, you know, and by the time I arrived in Iraq in 2000. Uh, nine, um, you know, uh, the war had been going on for so long that you know uh, there was huge amounts of data for us to to pour over uh, and to run models on, um, and I focused on that. But uh, once you're immersed in a war zone, um, you realize just how like it wasn't statistics anymore. Like it was, you know, like these weren't just. These were people with lives and um, you know flaws and you know all of the, the the vulnerabilities that people have and all the hopes and dreams and you know like mistakes that are made and and uh, the the life and death and it just became so real and so raw just being there and flying over you know like flying over neighborhoods and you know knowing the names of the neighborhoods and like which which not you know which which you know, Mulhalla number it was, you know, whether it was Zafrania or, you know. Um, so, so, these just, were, it's a lot. so these were neighborhoods that you'd been studying as an analyst back in the US um, and started yes. to know and understand and got to know quite intimately um, as, as pieces of, or as, as pieces of geography rather than as, as pieces of human geography. Right. Uh, and, um, that changes your perspective of things like, because I knew everything about this area, but I didn't know anything at all until like I saw it. 
I don't know if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I've worked in place, I've worked in Iraq, I've worked in Baghdad, I've worked in Afghanistan, and there's that gap between what you see on the ground, the kind of messy, uh, violent, complex, messed up kind of place that you see on the ground and the very sanitized version that people see back in their, back in their homes on their television screens. Is that how it occurred to you? Uh, it's not so simple as that. I mean, there's also like, you know, like, yeah, there's bad stuff, but you know, also like people live lives. Um, there were kids who would, you know, be playing soccer or, you know, football. Uh, and you know, there would be like people trying to reach out and help each other, um, on both, like, you know, whether local or, uh, you know, whether it was us as, as, as it being an occupying force. And, um, it's, it's, you know, it's like the, you know, I really can't, you know, talk about details all that much, but I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the, 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 so, you know, the, the video, the, um, assault or the, um, yeah, the, uh, uh, Apache weapons team video, uh, from 2007, um, that that's out there now. Um, you know, it's, 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 all, like it's so much deeper and more complicated. You see the, you see the worst of humanity, but in other moments you see like some of the best of humanity. Like you know, like if you watch the whole thing, you see like people, um, you know, trying to help people, and I, it's just so complicated. And I don't think that there's, I, 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 I'm, I'm not one to, you know, break it down so simply. Just for those members of our audience who, who weren't aware of the video, this was a, a, an absolutely shocking video that was filmed from the Apache helicopters, a couple of helicopters that were uh, asking for permission to open fire on a gathering, on a meeting um, in the city. And it, that meeting also happened to include a couple of Reuters journalists. Um, and we know that- Yeah, Reuters and nobody would care if it wasn't for that. Um, because there was, just, you know, this was, it was just business as usual. It was just another day. Um, there just happened to be more information about this because, uh, you know, it was journalists. And, you know, unfortunately, journalists' lives, you know, have a tendency of being valued more by the outside world than, you know, everyone else. But in this case, what it also did was draw, well, I guess it, it must have inspired you, must have made you feel that there was something that needed to be exposed, and it certainly drew a lot of attention from the public. That was a big sigh. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I, it seems so self-evident to me. So, let, again, let, let me take you forward. I don't want to dwell too much on this, and I know you want to move forward to the present, but what I do want to do is ask you about the kind of psychology that was taking place that you saw, the kind of, um, you mentioned Bayesian statistics and the way that the, the computer modeling was influencing the way that the military was, was operating. Could you just talk us through that very briefly and, and, and explain how it was that you came to feel that, that something had to give? Well, I, I, th I think it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, we were doing computer modeling. We were spending an awful lot of time doing this stuff, and I, you know, I did this work. Uh, I mean, tw like twelve hours a day, every single day, without a weekend. Um, and you know, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't really like it, it, they, it was only 
the modeling was only useful whenever it fit within what the command wanted. So if it didn't fit in that, it was just, we were just sidelined, you know, like our work was sidelined. So, um, you know, I, the contribute, you know, the, the, the sense of having an actual contribution um, was nothing more than, you know, a political one. So, but we, when we spoke, you were talking very much about the kind of feedback loops that were taking place where you, and, and the kind of the, the, the decision making is that something that we can we can talk through I mean uh, it, the which part of like uh, I mean I can explain the decision making process for that kind of thing it's um, you know uh, you, you you know activity happens in a particular neighborhood um, and this is the same thing with like policing uh, here in the US um, you know activity happens so a lot of activity happens that gets reported so reports are made which leads to more US or police you know uh, you know police presence in in, in American like uh, policing systems and I, I'm using pol policing systems as an example because many of the military things are classified but they they're very analogous to predictive policing methods and uh, what happens is you end up reporting more in neighborhoods in which you have more people uh, and therefore uh, it starts to, uh, you start to, to develop hotspots in which there's a lot of activity because we keep sending people there. And uh, uh, it's, it's very, uh, very much a feedback loop that happens where, you know, we intensify our activities in a location uh, and the responses intensify and the reporting, and, you know, becomes more frequent. So it seems like the the hot spot just gets hotter and hotter, and uh, you know, and and you can see this, and you can model this, and you can um, you can play with the numbers uh, to, to 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 see this. But when you start to do that, um, again, like you know, like mo the computer models are only helpful for decision makers when it fits within the the decision that they want uh, to make. You've, we'll come to that a little bit more in a minute, but um, one of the things that you've said since coming out of prison is that the life that you see here reflects in a lot of ways the kind of life that you saw in prison. Um, you mentioned what you've said is, is a world uh, with surveillance and so on. Can you explain that? Right, uh, it's quite clear. Um, here in the United States in particular, uh, we live in a domestic military occupation. Um, many of our most vulnerable communities um, have, you know, um, police with uh, body armor and AR-15s uh, policing neighborhoods, you know, usually people of color or immigrants. And, you know, you see, uh, I mean, you, you see surveillance cameras everywhere, um, both private and uh, public, and you see, uh, you know, the the, the intense. Um, and, and what's happened is a mentality of uh, we're going into a neighborhood uh, and we're not policing it. We're you know like we're patrolling it. You know, has sort of infected. Uh, you know, law enforcement, and then the, the the relationship between law enforcement and the intelligence community and the military in recent years, you know, with fusion centers, has 
blurred the lines to where the, the police is now a military and the military is very much a police force. And um, those lines just keep getting blurrier and blurrier. And, uh, and if you do, I mean, if you go into any neighborhood in a major city, um, Oakland, uh, I've seen this in Oakland, I've seen this in uh, Brooklyn, I've seen this in Baltimore, I've seen this in parts of uh, Northeast DC, um, you know, you, you, you really start to see what's going on. And, uh, you know, you'll see police cars that have their lights flashing for presence. Um, and uh, they just roll around neighborhoods with their light, lights flashing. But Chelsea, for, there, are, but there, are plenty of, there are plenty of people who would say that we're living in a dangerous environment. Um, the war on terror is going on. Terrorists themselves are becoming more sophisticated. Crime, organized crime is becoming more sophisticated. Shouldn't we be using, shouldn't the police be allowed to use, be able to use all of the pieces of technology that they have to, to keep us safe? Uh, no, because it only gets used for, I mean, it keeps getting used for bad purposes and it slides in this direction. So I, that makes me think that um, you can't, you, you, I mean, you can't trust government to be benevolent all the time. Um, I think that there is this assumption, um, especially in you know a place like the, U in the United States, where um, there's a rel there's been relative stability for a, a long period of time, at least domestically, um, where it, you know like the assumption is that oh well you know the institutions are functioning and they, they are you know benevolent and we will only do what they're supposed to do, but this just isn't the case. This is not how, this is not how, you know, systems like this work. If, you know, a, as you increase the amount of power and the amount of, you know, uh, authority uh, and that dependence on authority becomes more and more intense, then you start to see more and more abuse and the, you know, the, the, the abuse, you know, tends towards authoritarianism uh, and you know, ten, you know, system eventually tends toward um, really bad things. And you know, I, cer I certainly think in the United States, it's not, you know, it's it's not hyperbole to say that you know, there that we're that we're very much in a, an ethnic ethnic cleansing right now. You look at immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, you look at customs and border patrol, and uh, you see these very similar techniques. Um, you know, in in places that we consider you know dictatorships and authoritarian places and you know uh, it's it's just this it's this same tendency that we, we see where we, we keep giving up more of these um, you know we keep giving things up and it it, it, it they just take it and it just keeps you know and it's just I always find it interesting that um, you know uh, the the government net you know like the you know the the police state, if you will, the the military, the intelligence community, and the um, and uh, pol and police agencies in particular, they they never ask for less. They always ask for more. You'll never hear uh, a, a a politician say, "Actually, we need less. We need, we we don't need this many police officers. We don't need this many, you know, you know, like tanks and aircraft. Like this is not, you know, it doesn't tend in that." that direction. It just keeps getting big. Like the United States has the largest and most expensive, you know, military in the world, almost $700 billion a year. You know, like two years ago, it was only $550 billion a year. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we have the, the largest prison population in the world by far. Uh, we have the, uh, the, we have some of the most intense um, police presence in our cities uh, of any country at all. Um, and, uh, and they're armed to the teeth in many instances. And, um, you know, it, you just, it, it's one thing after another, but it's, it's never, it's always more and they're always gonna be asking for more. And, uh, you know, and my position is that, you know, rather than, uh, rather than give them more, we should stop that and, you know, strongly oppose that. And, uh, um, you know, and, you can't just reform it anymore. That's my, uh, that, that's my thing. I want, to, like, I, want, I want to come to how you challenge that in a minute, but I do want to ask again, at what point did you start to, did, did you start to see the politics of this? What point did you start to see this as being a problem? Was it back in Iraq? Has it been since you, you released from prison? At what point did you start to, did you start to understand the world in this kind of form? Uh, well, I mean, my first introduction, but I, I wasn't really political, was you know being homeless for a while. Um, but uh, I would say that you know the passage of Proposition Eight in two thousand eight, um, like uh, you know at the same time as you know Obama was elected. Proposition Eight. Was... Oh yeah, Proposition Eight was uh, 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 a um, it was a referendum in in uh, the state of California that. Uh, Earlier that year, there was, uh, you know, uh, uh, marriage equality had been, uh, you know, uh, made legal through the court pro through the, the court process here, and uh, that was undone. But you know, that was largely um, the way I viewed it. By was that you know, 51 point something percent of Californian voters vote, you know, voted to divorce to effectively divorce at the time. You know, 11,000 people. And that was a real shock for me as to my sense of the world. Uh, you know, I had been living under this assumption that history is over and things are always going to, you know, get better and things are, you know, it was just, uh, it, it challenged that. And, it, you know, it really shattered my understanding of the world, you know, and, and of institutions being benevolent because here's a, Supposedly benevolent political process doing something so horrific. But there are two two things that come arise from that. First of all, that happened before you went to Iraq, before you joined the military. Yes. So you went into the military already questioning the role of authority. Uh, no, like that was that that would that happened while I, I was in my pre-deployment you know, time. So that was uh, we were, I was doing domestic work at the time. Um, mostly border stuff. Okay, it then starts, also raises the question about how you respond to that, because what's happened since Proposition 8 is the Supreme Court in the United States has overturned Proposition 8, and marriage equality is, you, you know, gay marriage is possible in, in California. Why, what's wrong with, with those systems? Doesn't that show that the system actually works? Well, what is what does marriage equality do for queer kids on the street like I was? Um, what does it do for because uh, like we have the high you know we have a, a an astronomical you know, number of uh, queer and trans kids on the streets uh, and it, it's actually rising. It's it's not falling since marriage equality you know you know since we've had a supposed uh, queer and trans victory like like 
it, it, you know, like trans people in the military or whatever. Like it's when these things happen, it's not, it's only affecting a small portion of people and it's not really getting, you know, like uh, the, 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 the issues that affect most queer and trans people that I know are systemic. You know, it's uh, heavy policing. It's uh, the assumption that if you're walking while trans that you must be, you know, soliciting for, uh, you know, sex work. Um, so, you know, like the, the, none of these things uh, can be simply addressed by, uh, uh, by one court ruling. And I wrote an article um, at the time uh, on the day of that um, uh, the uh, marriage equality ruling had passed. I, and, I, and I basically said like this, you know, this, I, I, I feared that we had put all of our, um, our political eggs into this basket and left a, a whole lot of our communities behind. Let's talk about the surveillance state, and in particular, surveillance capitalism um, that you've spoken about. Yes, you're smiling there. Uh, this is this is Facebook. This is um, the, the Cambridge Analytica story, which scraped millions of uh, the data from millions of, of Facebook users, and then used that data to target them with political ads to influence the outcome of the last election. You're very concerned about about that, you're very concerned about the way that big data and, and algorithms are used. Can you explain what it is that, that, that worries you? Well, I mean, uh, this is business as usual. It's not, uh, you know, like the, the it, it's, it's well, the, the scandal here is that, you know, it wasn't really scandalous. What, you know, like the uh, Cambridge Analytica actually had uh, what they were doing as their as their business model, as their statement, you know, like their mission statement was effectively doing what they claimed to do. Um, and uh, you know, what, what what happened with you know what, what's happening with with Facebook and Twitter is that you know they've collected a, a huge amount of information on people um, on these social media networks. And you know, when, whenever you're using a free, you know, whenever you're you're uh, providing your information for free for a, a free social media you know, or social networking system, you're not, it's not really for free. You're, you're actually turning over something. You're turning over your personal information, which can then be subsequently sold and used. And uh, like, that's the model of the system. It's not, it shouldn't be shocking at all that this is happening. It, it's not great. I, uh, I, I, I'm not defending it one bit, but it is, it, these are features, not bugs, in the system. The question is, what does it mean for our society, and, and is there a way of pushing back from that, pushing back? Yes, there is a way of pushing back, but uh, it's not going to come through, you know, uh, legislation or court rulings or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think that there is an expectation um, that. Uh, you know, because it's not an awareness issue. People are aware of this issue. This isn't an educationist issue about like, well, we need to educate people on, you know, uh, on government surveillance or corporate surveillance or uh, the abuse of uh, large amounts of, uh, inf you know, personal information. I think it is, uh, or the manipulation of people based on that uh, information. I, I think that we're aware of these problems. I think most people are aware of these problems. It's, it's, learning how to do something about it. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no 
one size fits all uh, solution to that. But I, I do think that people uh, need to do something in response and uh, you, you can't just ask a broken system to fix itself. It's interesting, Denver Nix, who wrote a book about your case, he, he said that, uh, that your leak was the beginning of the information age exploding upon itself. And he was talking about a, a new era in which leaks were a weapon, um, but data security was is of paramount importance and, and privacy feels illusory. Do you, do you recognize that description? Uh, I mean, I do recognize the description, but uh, yeah, I, I tend not to read about myself. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, but yeah, like I, what's happening I, I don't, I, I think, I, I, you know, I, there's, there, you know, I think, I think it's a little, uh, it, I think it's a little um, hyperbolic, of it. I think it's a little bit hyperbolic <laughs> to say that. Um, uh, but, you know, I would certainly, I would certainly agree that things are trending in that direction. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, we are in a new era. And, you know, um, th this is probably the most fundamentally um, docking uh, advancement since the printing press. As disruptive as the printing press. Uh, even more so. I, have, you know, I don't think that we are anywhere near, um, like, I, I think that these controversies that we're having are just crashing the surface. I think that, um, you know, when we look back, when we look back in 2030, we'll be like, well, you know, those issues didn't seem that bad. There's a titter running through the audience, Chelsea. You probably can't hear it. Um, there's, you told the New York Times um, in, in one of the articles that I read that you told the New York Times, let's protect sensitive sources, let's protect troop movements, let's protect nuclear information. In other words, you're not about complete transparency. But you did say, let's not hide missteps, let's not hide misguided politics, let's not hide history, let's not hide who we are and what we're doing. Actually, I think that this is an interesting thing because New York Times heavily edited that. It was actually a very different article from the one that I wrote. <laughs> what, what would you have said? What did you want to say? I wanted to, I wanted to say that you know, personal information was uh, valuable and, and should be protected. And, uh, um, and that you know, most, most things that happen, you know, my sense of government you know, secrets and, and information that's collected is that it, 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 it always slides towards being more secretive. And it starts off with, well, it's just for sources and methods. And it's just for this, and it's just for that. But it it it, it rapidly slides to where everything is. And you know, I just look at what's happening here in the U.S., where huge amounts of domestic policy now, whether it's um, you know whether it's the use of stingray technology or the use of uh, or, or or the use of you know uh, informants. Uh, in, you know, uh, in investigations uh, by the DEA and by, um, you know, uh, other law enforcement, ICE in particular, these are now 
every one of these like minor policing actions is now viewed through the lens of national security. And it just constantly keeps getting bigger. That list, that list of things that, that you rattled off just gets longer and longer and longer. But again, let me put to you what the critics are saying, and that is that we live in a time of extreme threat. The war on terror is an ongoing conflict, and, and in that war on terror, we need to take these kinds of measures to keep, to keep us safe. Well, I mean, whenever I think about the war on terror, I, I usually view it from the, the perspective of everyone else, which is the sense is that we're, you know, the, we're, we're largely uh, being terrorized by our own state. You know, like uh, you just see it, like where now, you know, you look at the security theater that you go through at the airport. Um, I can't tell what's what's going on there. I think I got some static. <laughs> that, that wasn't static. That was applause. <laughs> oh, okay, I got it. Um, but yeah, like uh, you know, this you look at the security theater in the airport, for instance, and you look at you know, like having you know, uh, people in soldier outfits like everywhere. Like this is not necessary. You know, the, the, this is a disproportion. This is a vastly disproportionate response to the you know to, to these supposed things. These are uh, largely an excuse, I would say, for um, bolstering and uh, and and you know reinforcing uh, uh, an already. Um, you know, uh, exploding um, you know, police, military, and intelligence apparatus. And it's very profitable. You know, you make a lot of money off this stuff. And at one point in life, I, I wanted to make money off of it as a contractor. So. Yeah, and I'm, I'm probably betray my own politics here, but I also think that what happened to us in Egypt was a part of that war on terror where national security is being used as a way of silencing critics. <laughs> Chelsea... You have made a run at politics. Um, you wanted to, or you tried to go for pre-selection for a Senate seat earlier this year, but you lost. Is your Senate, is your political career over? <laughs> no, uh, I, 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 but I, I'm more of a, I, you know, really more of an activist. Uh, not, you know, I'm more of an activist and not necessarily a politician. So I view most of the work that I do through that lens. Um, you know, I, I, while I did run for Senate, the, the, the goal, uh, and actually, like, I had this sit-down, this long, long sit-down meeting with um, all the staff that we had um, when we started, whenever it kind of broke and became a, a much bigger news story than we actually expected it to be. Um, and, uh, and we got together and we, we decided, like, okay, like, you know, we have a lot of news attention, we have all these things, you know, like, which direction do we go in? We're at a crossroads here. Do we um, do, do do we try to you know do we try to get elected for you know uh, uh, and 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 do all of the things like you know the fo like the, the the focus groups and trying to 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 fit within this criteria of what you know a voter you know what this particular type of voter might be interested in or do we want to stick to our principles and have an actual platform that we believe in and uh we chose the latter and um, let me, let me just let me just run through some of some of the policies some of the, th the plat some of the things that were on your platform you said close prisons and free inmates yes uh, uh shut, you know start eliminate, shutting them down eliminate national borders restructure uh, i mean not, not, I mean, like, I didn't say eliminate them, but certainly uh, dramatically decrease the amount of, uh, of you know, policing that, that happens at them, where, you know, you're building border walls and, you know, 
guard towers and uh, and there's huge amounts of you know re regulations that you know you encounter and you know I, I always you know I always like I get I get nervous when I'm crossing over border borders and I know a lot of people who don't have the history that I have that you know feel the same way um, you want and uh, yeah. You wanted to restructure the criminal justice system, provide universal health care. Uh, no, no. no? Uh, I mean, restructure is uh, a big probably word. a tame word for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> what would it be? What's the word you would use? Uh, I mean, the time for reform was like 40 years ago. Like, we can't, we can't reform anymore. <laughs> This, it's a big manifesto, and I guess that fits the, the title of, of today's session, Chelsea Manning Wants to Change the World. Uh, yeah, it's a bit hyperbolic. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have that. <laughs> that was y'all. <laughs> Chelsea, I'm going to ask one more question before we uh, go to audience questions, and, and that is, look, in a, in a lot of ways, you've become a kind of inkblot test. For, for people, you know, the people on, on, on the left see you as something of, of a hero, as, a, as a, almost as a secular martyr, I think, as someone put it, as, as someone who stands up for openness and transparency, for transgender rights, for prisoner ref prison reform, and so on. And on the right, you're seen as a traitor, as, as, as someone who betrayed, betrayed your own country. I know the truth is always going to be far more complex than that. Where do you fit into that spectrum? Uh, I mean, what I've encountered is not that at all. I think what's going on here is that, you know, you have large numbers of people who don't have any say and don't have any power and don't, you know, and, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of the, the, the lesser classes of people uh, versus people in positions of authority and positions of power. You, know, you don't you don't hear these things coming out of the average person on the street, and you know, I walk the streets largely unmolested. Like no, and I just have to deal with you know people running up and asking me for selfies. Like, it's not, it's not you know it's it's not what I think you know uh, the people you know like people like the CIA director and the uh, Secretary of State and the you know the, the and the president want. Um, you know, so uh, I think that it's a divergence between. People in power and people not in power is what is where this lies. Not necessarily left versus right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's not static again, by the way. Yeah, I, I figured that out. <laughs> right. If we can have the house lights up, I think we'll come to audience questions. Um, we have four microphones, um, and anyone that has a question, I'd ask you to move to one of the microphones, I'll give you a moment or two. Um, and it looks as though we've got a couple of people up by microphone four up in the back corner there. If we can have microphone four. And, if you, it, and before, I, before you say, I, I would urge you, please, could everyone, I am gonna be fairly, uh, fairly strict about this, if you could please make sure that you ask a question. Um, we, don't, we're, we only have limited time, and please um, make it as brief as you can, thanks. Chelsea, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to witness you here today. It's a real tonic for the soul. My question is, has there ever been a day that you've regretted leaking what you did in the way that you did it? Uh, I've, I get asked this question a lot, but the simple answer is, is that I don't 
relitigate every, you know, I'm not going to go back and, you know, try to, you know, like, go through every single thing that could have happened because it, everything happened the way it happened because, you know, like that's, that's, that was the information I had at the time, it was available to me. Um, the resources and tools that were available to me, which were limited at the time. And, uh, and if, if I had made any other decisions, I mean, would I really be me? Thank you. Uh, microphone two. Um, hey, Chelsea. Um, you're, hey. looking, you're looking very impressive on a 15 to 20 foot high video screen here, by the way, <laughs> in the hall. Um, have to see you in the person okay. sometime. Um, I just wanted to, <laughs> yeah, looking very nice. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, very famously, you snuck out the information uh, on a Lady Gaga CD, I think, uh, and uh, I'm assuming Born This Way, the track is, that, that sentiment is very important to you. I'm just wondering, are those kind of musical icons, were they very important in you finding your two gender identity and uh, maybe feeling a sense of injustice to persecuted people that maybe led to the, the decision you made in terms of uh, wanting to release that information to protect people from being hurt in the future? Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's just a stroke of sheer luck that that was, that was what I was listening to at the time. Um, could have easily just been Taylor Swift or Kesha. <laughs> I, it's not. Yeah, I, it, there's not there's not a whole lot of depth to that. It just you know it it, it, it an incident of the the moment. Right. Uh, if we can go back to microphone four, sir. Yes. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Chelsea, for a interesting talk. I am Simon Levette at Western Sydney University and a PhD candidate. You briefly, I believe, referred to the fact that journalists in conflict zones are singled out for special protection, am I right? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences with journalists while in Iraq and Baghdad. Thank you. Uh, uh, they were non-existent uh, as soon as um, as soon as uh, the, the as soon as Obama got elected, um, largely uh, embedded reporter numbers dropped in almost uh, almost instantaneously. So um, at any one time, I think that the count that we had, according to the PAO brief, was um, between three and four embedded reporters in the entirety of Baghdad. So. Um, and also, like, there's the re relationship of embedded reporters versus, um, you know, like, other reporters, where embedded reporters get all these special protections, but they also are restricted information that they are able to to uh, to access and the things that they're able to write because they can arbitrarily have that removed, um, and they don't have. Uh, there's actually been court rulings where, um, it, in the United States, where. Uh, there, you know, embedded reporting is not considered a First Amendment protected um, activity. Uh, it can be arbitrarily removed for any, uh, it doesn't necessarily have, or it can be no reason at all. It can just be at the whim of, uh, of a commander in the field. Right, uh, microphone two. Yeah, g'day, Chelsea. Uh, my name's Brendan. I'm definitely not a PhD candidate. I'm just a regular bloke. 
like me. Uh, well, so thanks yeah. for hearing me. Um, I, I want to circle, I was really interested about your comments about hot spots in Iraq becoming hotter spots and almost that due to the activity of applying more surveillance and more military and, and heating up the place. And then you made some comments later on about America and the activities there being hot spots and then militarising the police and, and those spots becoming hotter spots and obviously America's got, you know, one of the largest incidences of, of mass shootings in the world yet you've got one of the biggest armed police forces in the world. So, and then you've gone on further to say that we're well beyond the point of reform. What's the solution? How do we, how do we back out of this? I mean, obviously, uh, um, you know, t turning this into a, a war ourselves is, is essentially playing them at their own game. What's the solution to, to driving that backwards? Oh, uh, you know, we, we, have to, we have to start doing things ourselves. And uh, the way, you know, it, it's quite simple. Um, every action that we do and every decision that we make is, is in a sense, a political decision. Um, you know, going vegan is a political decision. Um, and also like not doing something uh, at all, um, you know, is, a, is essentially a political decision. Apathy is a political decision that you're, you're actively ignoring, you know, something, uh, you know, so, uh, it, you really have to be engaged. You have to be involved, and uh, you know there's way more you know which we can do. As you know, we have a lot more political agency than just you know putting in a ballot into a into a box or uh, you know signing a petition or um, you know uh, going to a, a protest with signs and chanting and you know things like that there we have a lot more political agency than that and uh you know uh i'm every single situation with every single person is going to be different obviously i was in a particular position that you know differs from somebody on the street but we both have the ability to make a difference in a political difference um it, it just we, we have to find we have to find that way in which we can do it but you have really have to be paying attention in order to do that and uh and this isn't just for an individual, it's for communities. I mean, communities can come together and, and make decisions. And one of the things that I, that I always, that I found during, I was actually during my uh, run here in the US um, was that, you know, communities know exactly what they need. They don't need somebody telling them, hey, here's the solutions that I propose for your community. Um, really, they already know what the issues are. They are, and they already know what the solutions are. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, most of the solutions that we have to these problems can actually be solved by, you know, by communities coming together and solving them themselves uh, and not expecting a, a, you know, a massive, uh, you know, uh, government to, fix, you know, to, to try to maybe give them some paltry thing. Um, I think that, you know, that, that that's sort of an approach that I have is more of a, a more of a bottom-up approach than a top-up or top-down approach. Thank you. Up in the back, uh, quick, uh, microphone three, please. My name's Alex, and I work for Amnesty International. When we do finally get you here, what are you most excited to see and do in Australia? Ooh, good question. Uh, I don't know. Was, uh, I, I I really want to go 
to the western part and I don't know, see some beaches and stuff. <laughs> Chelsea's in California at the moment, by the way, not short of beaches. Um, yeah, and it's summer here too. <laughs> Which is not what you want to do when you're here then. Um, quick, a microphone too, sir. Hello, Chelsea Main. My name is Cameron Strauss, and I just want to say the fact that I get to speak to you right now, I consider a, a big, big honor. Um, I just also want to just quickly mention that my former local member of parliament was actually David Coleman, who was the immigration minister. So I just want to, just want to let you know that I'm going to be, I promise that I'm just going to be campaigning so hard to get him out of the next election. <laughs> Support Chris Gambit, everyone. He's an absolute legend. Just saying. Right, the question, but, sir. But uh, my actual question was, um, you're talking about what, what policy platform you were campaigning for with your, with your campaign. So like universal health care, de demilitarizing the police, um, abolishing ICE, that sort of stuff. Um, Bernie Sanders also supports a lot of similar policies, and it's very likely he's going to run in the next Democratic primary. If he does, will you support him? Uh, I, I tend not to make those kinds of decisions ahead of time. Um, uh, I, I certainly will, I, I certainly take the time to, to, to make an assessment as to who I vote for uh, in any election, um, you know, but I can't, I can't, so, you know, I, I'm not going to, before that even gets uh, put out there because people do change their positions um, and uh, I have no idea, like we're, we haven't even had our midterm elections here in the U.S., so um, I'm I'm hesitant to, to to jump so far ahead, and uh, I'm you know, I, and I, I've got to say that um, I think that the midterm elections in the U.S. are probably not going to turn out the way that the rest of the world thinks they are. Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> um. I just get this, I, I get the sense that there's, uh, there's two countries. There's a, a, a very isolated, um, you know, set of cities on the coasts uh, that differ very significantly from the middle of the country, like the Midwest in particular, um, and the mountainous regions and the, the deep south. And, uh, you know, like, obviously, you know, like there's the notion of things being red versus blue, but it's actually much deeper than that because the, uh, the red versus blue is you know, like often a 5% difference in, in, the po in the population. But uh, in terms of how, uh, how these different places view the world, I think what differs significantly. I think that um, certainly establishment people power in, in media um, think that they uh, are in control and that, um, you know, that their opinions are, are widely respected and widely held. But if you go out of the cities, um, you don't find that. You find that most people are skeptical uh, and, complete, and, and completely and largely ignore, you know, talking heads on TV um, or do the or believe the opposite. So I think that's that, that's what's going on is where uh, the it's the way that the outside you know and I'm not necessarily rural uh, areas but um, the way that you know like outside of Washington DC outside of New York outside of Los Angeles outside of San Francisco the the way that um, 
that part of the uh, country um, views itself and views its position. Uh, microphone three. Kelsey, I'm Elaine. I'm from actually China here as an international student. So uh, you haven't got a visa visited here. You're not lucky. Thank you. So you haven't visa visited Australia, but in China, there's literally no news talking about you. And we literally now, now VPN is become more and more difficult to we don't even have the chance to visit Twitter or Facebook. So could you provide us some advice on how to deal with this kind of situation and how to relieve such kind of stress and anxiety facing this as a kind of situation in our country as a person who really cared about this kind of social issues and um, to keep ourselves safe and to keep ourselves ourselves. Right. Um, uh, on the technical front, um, you know, there, there's a tool, Tor. Uh, the Tor project uh, spends a lot of time trying to get um, to, to develop, uh, you know, uh, bridges so that way uh, certain countries that have more restrictive internet uh, connections are, you know, are able to transfer. Uh, information like to and from those. Um, and that's a constant um, sort of arms race process, uh, especially in China. Um, but uh, the, the tool is available and it's still, it's a lot more robust of a tool than, uh, than virtual private networks are. Um, and on the, the, the more, um, more political front, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's gonna largely depend not on the outside world, but you know, on, on uh, on you know what happens within China, and I think that control of the flow of information uh, by uh, by the central state uh, does not necessarily mean that there aren't other communication channels. Um, I think that uh, obviously people have throughout history been you know uh, you know like working through whisper networks and uh, having uh, close relationships that, you know, transcend like uh, a little bit further out of their areas, you know, family members move and, uh, you know, information flows and things like that. So uh, I'm, I, I'm gonna say that uh, I do believe that oh, many of these things can be transcended just by human nature and not necessarily by uh, technology. Chelsea, that seems like a fantastic place to wrap it up. Um, I, we have... Sorry. <laughs> we would all love more. The clock, yeah, the clock is against us. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you all. You've been listening to Chelsea Manning in conversation with Peter Grester at Antidote 2018. You can read more about Chelsea on the Sydney Opera House website, and there's a bunch of other talks from Antidote waiting for you on the Talks and Ideas YouTube channel. Find the links in our show notes. And the theme of surveillance continues next episode with a fantastic talk by Joshua Lyons, whose work with Human Rights Watch uses surveillance technologies to reveal what really goes on in conflict zones. We'll see you then.